everybody. It's good to be here with you this morning. Good to be back. I've, um, I know there's a number of us in the room that have been traveling recently. It's always good to come back. It's always good to be back together. And um, yeah, I've been quite busy of late and this week things kind of calmed down a bit finally. So I took a bit of a break and now I've got a cold. So I apologize for that. Hopefully you're still better hear me uh, clearly and it won't get in the way of the message this morning. Um, actually, I might not be able to hear me clearly because I'm a bit bunged up on the left-hand side. So if you're shouting at me from the left, you know, some sort of, you know, you're being a heretic or something, then I'm not listening to you. I'll listen to the ones on the right because uh, this here appears to be fine, which is great. We're starting a new series uh, this morning and the series is intriguingly entitled The Four R's, the four R's. And I thought before we get into it this morning, I would uh, set a little bit of a context for maybe some of us that don't understand where we're coming from. This has come out of some work that's been going on for a number of months with the elders, and we've been presenting it to uh, church meetings in different ways, and and we will continue to share this. Um, But I thought it would be a good idea to explain what the four R's are. We're we're at R number one this morning. Um, and we're, we're talking about relationships, but there are four of them. There's relationship, respect, relevance, and response. Relationship, because as a church, we are called to go. We're called to go and out to the world, and we have to make relationship with people. Respect, because a loving church attracts attention. Relevance, because we, as Christians, need to understand and I've entitled it here, Minding the Gap. What is the gap? It's the gap between our uh, futility and God's eternity. And then, of course, response, because everyone needs to be rescued. Now, why are we doing this? Well, if you were looking at it from our perspective, if you're looking about um, what we might say, um, it's, you might say this. You might say, with regard to relationships, I know some non-Christians. I can be strategic about uh, the way I'm relating with people that aren't just all Christians. Uh, When it comes to respect, we meet the needs within our community through the love of Jesus. When it comes to relevance, I can explain my faith and how it relates to my daily living. And then when it's response, I can explain the good news of Jesus and how to respond. To a non-Christian, that might look like this. I know some Christians. I respect the Christians I know. I see the relevance of Christianity to my own life and I understand the need for Jesus as my Lord. Do you see that progression? And the reason we're looking at it and the reason we're structuring things in this way is we're, we've taken a big look at what we've been doing as a church, what ministries we're involved in, what, what areas of work as a church do we do. You see, sometimes as church we can get a little bit tied up in activity and programme and don't necessarily understand what we're doing, or why we're doing it. So this is a way of measuring what we're doing. And in everything that we're doing, it should fit into one of the four R's. It should be building relationship. It should be big and relevant. It should be, perhaps, uh, gaining respect of our community. Or it should be giving people the opportunity to respond. So that puts it into context for you, in a nutshell. Um, you'll see a lot more of it. We'll use it a lot more as we go through the year. But we're starting this morning just to look at 
the first subject, which is relationship. God is all about relationship. People are God's first priority throughout the Bible. Right at the very beginning, Genesis 1.26, God makes people in his own image. He places them in the garden and he gives them authority to rule. Only people are given, uh, are given uh, the ability to relate to God in this personal way. And then even after those first two people, Adam and Eve, reject God, that creator's heart for people still continues. He provides clothes for them. And he promises a way back to him. Rather than to leave them forever in a broken relationship, God plans a day when people will be restored to a relationship with him. See, that's God's heart. There's a constant refrain in the Bible, and that is, I will be their God, and they will be my people. God is a God of people. And with his people. It's not a building. As a church, we're not a building that maybe we might go and visit God once a week if he's lucky. God is about relationship. We are his church. We obviously meet in a school here, but if we were perhaps meeting in what is a tr- traditionally seen as church, a church building, there isn't a situation when we all go home and then cease to be church. Because we can be church together, but we're still church when we're not uh, together. We still have that relationship with God. And when Jesus says to Peter, you are my rock on which I build my church, I don't think he had a number of major building projects in mind and a large and uh, valuable selection of real estate. The verses we're looking today in Matthew's Gospel. Now, I would encourage you, here's a challenge for you this week, pick a Gospel, any of the four, doesn't matter, and read through that Gospel. Won't take too long, a couple of hours maybe. But as you go through it, look at how Jesus works with people. How he builds relationships, how he calls those disciples, all from different walks of life, but how he handles each of them with their different gifts and abilities. Some, of course, will end up writing the Gospels and the letters and maybe be more prominent in leaders. And some others, he may have called them for different reasons. But God builds his church through relationships. And he starts with 12 men. If we were to go back to chapter 4 of Matthew, that's when you would discover in verse 20 when he calls the first disciples. Now, the calling of the disciples was always a little bit of a puzzle for me when I was growing up. He'd go out and he'd see perhaps a couple of disciples fishing, and he would say, come follow me. And they did. And to me, I found that always a little bit odd. It seemed far too simple. Let's look at it in, um, well, we've looked at it in chapter 4. After Jesus invited two brothers, Simon and Andrew, to follow me, the text says that 
immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. Now, leaving their nets was leaving everything that they knew. It meant saying farewell to the familiar and leaving it all so quickly with little information about Jesus, to be quite honest, didn't ring true to me. Why in the world would they do that? But the verse starts to make sense when we read another gospel. If you read John's gospel. And in John chapter 1, John explains that Andrew was already a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. On two occasions, John the Baptist explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they took it seriously and they trusted John the Baptist. Now out of Andrew's trust... When Jesus said, invited him, he understood that. So to follow him was natural. When Andrew went to his brother Simon and said, we found the Messiah, there was a trusted relationship. Later on, um, when Jesus met Philip in Bethsaida, he invited to come and follow him. Now Philip uh, and Andrew and Simon Peter were all from Bethsaida. They would all have known each other. They probably spent time together in their hometown discussing Jesus' invitation to follow him. And to me, suddenly the story started to make sense. You see, the the disciples had time to get to know Jesus and to talk to one another about how they followed Jesus. So when then Philip invited Nathaniel, whom he knew well, come and see if Jesus is the Messiah or not, following Jesus did not come out of the blue. It grew naturally out of trusting relationships. And this is a clue, perhaps, to the importance of relationships in the work of evangelism. Let's look at the passage uh, that we had read to us, Matthew 9, starting at verse 9. Jesus was on his way through Capernaum. Now, why do we know that? Jesus went out from there. Well, where was there? If we go back um, to the beginning of Matthew 9, uh, we discover uh, that he just stepped out of the boat and come into his own town. This was Jesus' own town. That's where he was. And he sees a man uh, named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he simply says those two words. Follow me. Why did he respond? Why did Matthew respond? Because you see, Matthew simply did that. He gets up and he follows him. Now, to be quite honest, he probably knew who Jesus was. It's likely that he'd just seen the miracle that Jesus had performed in healing the paralyzed man. This was Jesus' hometown. This is where Matthew was based. So it wasn't that Jesus wasn't known to him. But he just responds and says, follow me. And at that moment, I think it was a case of the fact that he realizes he needs a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is offering him something better 
than what he has. Now, Matthew, as a tax collector, would have been despised by the Jewish community. He was, after all, siding with the Romans. It was their taxes he was collecting. He would have broken his relationship with his own community in doing that. Maybe his parents had rejected him. Now, he had a great life, maybe, from the point of view of wealth, from the point of view of being a tax collector. They were known for collecting a little bit more for themselves. So from the point of view of wealth, from the point of view of success, maybe from the Roman Empire point of view, he was doing okay. But he knew he missed something. He knew he needed Jesus. Question though is, why did Jesus call him? Well, we don't actually know. But what we do know is in the next verse, we find that Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. And there, Jesus has an opportunity to meet other tax collectors and other sinners and a chance to reach the lost. We go back to the passage and pick it up in verse 11. I've taken the numbers out. (laughs) When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Now, to be quite honest, if I was one of the disciples being asked that question, I'd probably have sat there and thought, well, that's a very good question. Why is he eating with the sinners and the tax collectors? You see, if you think about it, if you go back to chapter 4, where they were called and you work your way through the passages to get to this point, they'd had a pretty good time. Everything was pretty good for these new disciples. They'd received some pretty good teaching from Jesus. Jesus had started to help people with their problems. Let's see now. He'd, um, he'd healed a man with leprosy. The centurion's paralyzed servant was healed. He calms a storm. Deals with two demon-possessed men before forgiving and healing the paralyzed man. That's just before this story. From the point of view of the disciples, it's pretty cool being a disciple of Jesus. Everything's going well. And now they find themselves at Matthew's house. Jesus picks up on it. He interjects and he simply says this. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. This would, of course, silence the uh, Pharisees. But in order to nail it completely home, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So I have not come to the righteous, but to sinners. Now come back to that verse a little later on. But the point is here that Jesus is teaching his disciples and it's simple. You need to make people a priority and they were about to soon understand that because they were about to soon be put to the test. Which brings us to the second passage on your notice sheets this morning which is the beginning of chapter 10 of Matthew and we're going to pick that up right now. Matthew chapter 10. Let's read through it together. Jesus calls his 12 disciples to give them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal 
disease and sickness, verse 1. Now, there are five goes that I want to pick up as we go through this passage. And the first is this, go with my authority. He gives his disciples authority to extend the kingdom of people devoted to him and in a relationship with God by giving them authority to demonstrate the life-changing work of God. The life-changing work of Jesus. Go with my authority. This isn't something to keep quiet to ourselves. You are to go and show others. I was reminded when I was preparing this of a situation I found myself in many years ago when I was working for the police. I had it pretty pushy at the police. A number of good Christian friends. My boss was a Christian. A number of colleagues were Christians. We had a great time. One day, one of the non-Christians became a Christian. And my boss said, oh, you, do you know that Mark's become a Christian? So oh, no, I didn't. So I went and saw him. So I, said, I hear you become a Christian. And he said, yeah. And he starts to share the gospel with me. And he's trying to persuade me to become a Christian. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm already a Christian. Do you know what he said? Why do you keep it a secret? Challenge that. We're to go with his authority. Let's continue to read. We're going to read through to verse 5. These are the names of the twelve apostles. Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, John of Altheus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of of the Samaritans. That's the second go. Go where I am sending you. Do not go with the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Now that seems a little limiting. But actually in this case it was a case of you're just going to go to the community you know. The ends of the earth, all of Samaria, that comes later. But for now, there was a little bit of a focus. Go where I send you. The point is here that they were given a specific commission. And we're all given specific commissions. My commission might not be the same as your commission. Jesus handles us as individuals. He gives us our own challenges and the areas we may want to work. We talked about Corinna working in Moldova. That's her commission. It's not mine. Your commission might be to your neighbours or the school gate or wherever. But we're to go where he sends us. Now I'll come back to that in a little while. Reading on to verse 6. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. That's our third go. Go to the lost people. We need to focus on the lost. This is where the urgency is. Those cut off from a relationship with God. Reading verse 7. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Number four. Go with my message. Friends, we need to be communicating this life-changing message of God and the opportunity of restored relationship and an access to God's family 
and a place beyond this world and into eternity. We need to communicate this message. Now you might find that a struggle, I don't know. But actually we are charged with going and doing just that. Let's continue reading verse 8 onwards. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not give any gold or silver or copper or take anything in your belts. No bag for your journey, no extra uh, shirt or sandals or staff for the workers worth their keep. Uh, for the workers are worth their keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at that person's house to till you receive and that's the fifth go go to receptive people now we need to spend our time wisely is what jesus is saying here we need to reject we yeah so we should spend time wisely with receptive people jesus is also clear that many will reject the message but we shouldn't waste time on them i always thought that was a bit odd one day, about three years ago, I met a man in Germany called Sharam. Sharam is a pastor of an Iranian church. When I last spoke to Sharam, he planted four other churches. But he had a discipleship technique, which I consider probably one of the most ruthless discipleship techniques ever. And that was this. He would spend time in small groups or individually with men. But if they were not receptive, he'd push them aside because there were plenty of others. And I thought, wow. He started with 150 men and baptized 88. But out of that 88, he developed a culture of relationship with God and a relationship with one another such that out of those 88 that he baptized, many went back to Iran to preach the gospel. Many were taken to other parts of Germany where there were other refugees and other Iranian communities and planted those churches quite a challenge but actually sometimes we do have to be wise and spend our time wisely but that's not an excuse just to spend time with nice people sometimes annoying people can be receptive so let's not get that wrong now about 15 years ago while sitting in a church service not too dissimilar to this i was listening to a sermon by a friend of mine called derek savage and Derek got to about this point in his sermon and he stopped. And he said, I want to give you a challenge. I want you to just pray to God right now for him to place somebody on your heart and name who you should be praying for, who you should be looking for opportunities to meet with, who you should be looking to an opportunity to grow relationship with, who you should be spending time with so that you can show them the difference that Jesus makes to your life so that you can lead them through to a point where when they finally get it, and they're ready to make a response, you can take them to Christ. I thought, well, that was a bit odd. We'd not seen that before. We got back home for lunch that Sunday, and Julia and I were talking about the sermon. And I said, what did you think of the challenge? Who did, you, who did God place on your heart? And she said, Simon. And I went, oh. I said, that's interesting. You know who put what Jesus put on my heart 
Simon. It was the same person. He was a neighbour. Now, we lived kind of towards a bit of a cul-de-sac in our street. And if you, we knew most of the people in the cul-de-sac. And if you were to list the names and put them in an order of who you'd want to spend time with, Simon might not, might not have even made the list. He was a difficult person. But the problem was God had placed Simon on both of our hearts. So we had a problem. So we said, well, there's nothing else for it. We're going to have to invite them around for dinner. And it was hard work. I'm telling you, it was painful. Discovered he was a mason. I mean, it went from bad to worse. We got onto the subject of God. And yes, he believed in God. Because to be a mason, believe it or not, you have to believe in God. And so we had quite a difficult and very Simon-centered conversation. And to be quite honest, we got to the end of the evening where we were grateful when we could finally shut the front door and say goodbye and they walked over to number three where they lived. But the challenge still existed. And we made friends with them and we, we integrated with them and, and actually they got involved a little bit of the toddler group. Uh, she was a childminder, if I remember rightly. And, and there were a number of ways that we, we worked with them. Now, Simon was a salesman. And his job wasn't going so well. He wasn't that impressed with his job. So he decided to quit his job and buy a toy shop. You're thinking, where is this going? Well, to be quite honest, his kids loved it. Dad now owned a toy shop. But he bought a toy shop just as there was a bit of a downturn in the retail sector. And he was struggling. And he said to me one day, Mark, can you think of any, any ways that I can increase trade? Can you come and have a look at the toy shop? Can you tell me... Is there anything that you, know, you could help me with? And I said, oh, I'll come and have a look. And I said, Simon, you don't sell any puppets. He said, what do you mean puppets? I said, well, I know a community that likes to buy puppets. Like, it's a bit weird, I know, but we use puppets in church. And so we need some good quality puppets. Would you be able to supply us puppets? So oh, yeah, I'll get a few puppets. And he started selling the puppets. And then there was a Christian conference that came on. And um, it turned out they wanted some people to come and sell things at the side of the conference. And so I gave them a bit of a link in and I said, why don't you go and sell your puppets at the Christian conference up the road? He loved it. It was brilliant. He sold loads of puppets. We then left town. We came here. And about a year after we'd been here, we got a phone call. It was from our old home group leader or community group leader, who knew all about our relationship with Simon because we shared it in community group. And he said, Mark, do you remember Simon, who you were praying for? I said, yeah. He became a Christian tonight. Do you know what happened? By God's providence, the fourth year running, he was back at the same Christian conference selling his puppets. Problem is, the organisers had a bit of a rearrangement in the way things worked. And he found himself with his puppet stand right outside the main venue. And he wasn't going to leave his puppet stand because you can't trust them Christians. <laughs> so he found himself listening to the message. Wayne, our community group leader, came out, one of the first people out of the venue, and he turned and he saw Simon. Simon was in tears 
see, even obnoxious people can be receptive in the end. Okay. I'm going to share with you some principles of relationship evangelism. And then we're going to move back uh, to the first passage that we had. And the first is this. The invitation to explore a relationship with Jesus grows naturally out of conversation. What do I mean about this? Well, if you look back at when Nathaniel um, found out from Philip when Jesus was from Nazareth, he asked an amazingly refreshing and honest question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, well, he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't say, what do you mean? He says, no. He says simply, come and see. Relational evangelism grows naturally out of conversation. It's never forced. It might take time. It could take years. But nobody can manipulate somebody into starting a relationship with Jesus Christ. Rather, the best evangelism is when a person asks the question, and we invite them to come and see. We walk with them, and we wrestle with them, and their questions and the answers. So the invitation to explore relationship with Jesus should be something that grows naturally out of conversation. Secondly, evangelism isn't about us. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, no one says Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Evangelism is the work of the Holy Spirit through human relationships. Here's the third. Everyone is different. mentioned this earlier. Faith develops in different ways that are consistent with the life of the individual. God isn't, as the American friends of mine would put it, a cookie-cutter God. He doesn't have the same way of doing it for everybody. He, he's created you as an individual. He's created those non-Christian friends of yours as individuals. He will start and work within them and in their lives in a unique way that is about who they were created to be. Our unique personhood is at the very heart of evangelism. It also means that us as individuals has a unique story. The truth is that God wants to know us. He can't live without us. And God wants to know us and love us for everyone, uh, forever. If you looked at those verses, as you go through, as you will do, I know, one of those Gospels, you'll see that he called the disciples in different ways. He treated them individually. God is about the individual. But here's the thing, you also have an individual story. You have a story that how God has treated you. What happened before you know, knew God? How you come to know God and what was the difference it made to your life? And I have to say, sometimes we don't spend enough time sharing our testimonies. You see, that's what it should happen through relationship. Through relationship, we should be able to share with one another and tell people the journey that we've been on and the difference it's made What can we um, learn from ourselves from this? Well, the first thing is this. The command go 
is not an optional command. Yes, we all have our own giftings and strengths. Yes, we might not all be considering ourselves to be evangelists, but we all need to prepare, be prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have, says Peter in 1 Peter 3, 15. We also need to make it a priority. I've got a slide for this. Just before Jesus sends out the 12th, in chapter 11, sorry, chapter 10, we kind of skipped over some verses at the, big, at the end of chapter 9. And Jesus says these words, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out the workers into his harvest field. Jesus tells his disciples there is a harvest. It's plentiful, but it needs workers. So pray and go. There is a priority to it. Thirdly, this. As Christians, we can often find ourselves spending a lot of time with Christian friends. And we need to find ways of building better relationships with our non-Christian friends. Because it's not the healthy that need a doctor. But it takes real relationship. Just being friends or being nice and to try and use that to convert people just isn't going to work. One of my friends has a testimony that was quite amazing. I won't share the testimony. But when he finally went to church, one of the pieces of advice he gave was given was stay away from your non-Christian friends. Now he could understand the principle that they might drag him back into the life that he came from. And it was quite a dramatic change. But that wasn't Jesus' approach. Jesus went to Matthew in his tax booth and said, follow me. And the very next verse, Jesus is having tea at Matthew's house. And do you know what? My heart in this church is that we will find people that God wants us to start a relationship with that are like Matthew's. Who will immediately say, come to dinner and meet my friends. Because these people need Jesus too. I said earlier that I would come back to um, chapter 9 and verse 13. And let's do that now. But, I, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus here is quoting the prophet Hosea. You find these words in Hosea 6.6. And he's using it because he knows that the Pharisees would know exactly what he is quoting. And he's very direct. Go and work out what this means. You know it. It's in the scriptures. But you're completely missing the point. You see, they've got stuck in a rut. Everything for them was about sacrifice. In order that they may be good enough for God. But they got so fixated with that that they'd missed the whole point. I meant to put an extra slide up and it got missed in a, in a computer crash that happened. 
But Michael W. Smith put a post up in Facebook this week. And it was comparing the difference between religion and relationship. And under religion it said this, I've messed up. Oh no, my dad's going to kill me. Under relationship it said, I've messed up. Better call dad. You see, there's a massive difference between where the Pharisees were and where they needed to be. They'd got stuck in the whole, if we do this procedure, if we do this, follow this law, if we follow these regulations, they even made up some of their own regulations, they added in idols, they added in all sorts of stuff. But they missed the point. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They'd missed the whole point that God wants a relationship. He wants you to love him. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Deuteronomy 6.5 Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. Every morning and every evening the rabbis would use those verses as a prayer. Love the Lord your God. Love. And yet they were stuck in the rut of sacrifice. They were just chanting the words and missing the whole point. God wants a relationship. He wants us to truly love him. I desire mercy, he says, not sacrifice. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. I'm going to pray for us number of things to think about. But as we do this, I just want you to, just for a moment, just think, are we like those Pharisees? Have we got stuck in a rut? Have we got into the sort of ritual of just doing church? Have we lost that first love? When we first understood what he had done for us. And I just want you to personally Maybe have a time of reflection in your own hearts at this moment. Just give you a moment just to say sorry if that's where you find yourself this morning. Maybe, of course, that you're here this morning and you haven't ever had that opportunity to understand the real relationship that God wants to have with you personally. And if that's the case, maybe God by his Holy Spirit is speaking right into your heart right now. And if that's the case, then that's, that's fine. You could say these words, Father, Lord God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. I know that I need this relationship with you. Lord, I don't understand everything. But Lord, receive me, I pray. Accept my life. I want a relationship with you, Jesus. Father, we thank you that you want to have that relationship with us. Lord, we thank you that it's a relationship that is a meaningful relationship. Lord, it was something that you demonstrated that when you came to this earth, Lord Jesus, when you came as a man, You use relationship to share your love. Lord, the way that you work with those disciples, 
the way that you spent time with people. Lord, may we fully understand what it is to be able to do that on a daily basis. Lord, what it is to really be not just church, but your people. Called by you to share your love with others. Lord, as we've been thinking through a number of the challenges that have been in the passages this morning, as we perhaps have been thinking about some of those friends that you've placed on our hearts, a bit like Simon for me and Julia all those years ago. Lord, they may be obnoxious, they may be difficult. But Lord, if this is our mission, if this is where you're sending us to go, Lord, I pray that you'll help us go. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a song in response to that. And it's all I once held dear. Maybe you want to sing this also as a prayer as we come towards the end of our service this morning.